0: The reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel.
1: All right. Hey, if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Exodus 19? We're going to be in that passage this morning. Exodus is, if you're new to your Bible, second book, so it's at the very, very, very beginning. Uh, you can flip over there. And again, just as a reminder, uh, if you're new or you're just jumping in with us, we are uh, in the middle now of a four-week series on our four core values. Now last week we looked at the core value of the gospel. It's the reality that Jesus saves sinners, that he initiates, that he comes towards us. And then our other three core values are our responses to the gospel. It's things that are shaped now by the gospel. And this first one that we're going to look at from Exodus 19, our first uh, response is our response to God and this idea that we call worship. All right, so our second core value that we're talking about is worship. So uh, let me pray for one second just for this, and then we're going to jump in. God, as Gabe said, we trust that this is your word. As we took a moment of silence to, to just still our hearts, we are ready to hear. Would you give us sharp minds? Would you give us soft hearts as we look at your word that it would shape us and that it would lead us into worship? Would you help my tongue and all of our ears as we now hear your word? God, we need your help. We need your spirit. Would you do that this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, most famous commencement speeches, probably in recent history, uh, happened in, in 2005 at a college in Ohio. Maybe some of you have heard of this. It was a, a man, and he was an author uh, named David Foster Wallace. And this man was giving a commencement speech to the school, and uh, what I want us to, to focus on, or what I want to quote is is kind of his crescendo at the end. He gave this whole speech, and it was leading up to kind of these last couple thoughts and these last paragraphs, and, and his theme that he was getting at was worship. Now, as we're going to read this in a second, I want you just to have in your mind, David Foster Wallace uh, is not a Christian. He was not a Christian, this isn't a Bible verse, this isn't somebody from the church trying to explain to the world what worship is. This was just simply an astute observation, I think, from a man in our society then. Not from the church, but just from the world, he looked around, and this is what he said to these students. It's fairly long, so I have it up here. He said this, Here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, whether it be Jesus Christ or Allah, Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You worship your own body, and beauty, and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly, And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay and so on. He says everybody worships. The only choice you have is what you will choose to worship. Again, this is not a, a pastor saying this. This is not a church member saying churchy things about a church word. This is a man in our culture looking around and saying, look, your heart will worship something. He says it could be a God or some sort of ethical system. It could be power, your body, your money. He says you don't have an option of whether or not you want to worship. You simply have the option of what you will worship. Worship. Now, for us for this morning, uh, just kind of a, if, if you're wondering what this idea of worship is or trying to get a, a definition, um, think of worship essentially as what you give ultimate value and worth to. Right? The word worship is historically it's linked with the word worth. It's the thing that we give our worth to. It's the things that we value, that we treasure in life. Now I agree with David Foster Wallace's insight that it's not a matter of if we are worshiping as a people or not. It's just, what are we worshiping? So think for a moment. Reflect on what is of ultimate worth in your life. Think through what is of ultimate value. What am I worshiping because I'm giving great worth and value to this. If it's hard for you to begin to kind of sift through in your head and your heart what it might be that you're worshiping, um, think of it like this. The objects that we worship are never the small things in our life. The things that you worship are the things that orient your life. It's the things that set your schedule. It's the things that drive your budget. It's the things that change your plans at the last minute. It's the things that set a foundation for how you then make decisions in day-to-day life. So if you want to know what you're worshiping, consider asking questions like this. What do I spend the most time thinking about? What do I spend the most of my words talking about? Where do I spend the most of my money? What has authority to change all of my plans at the last minute to make sure this thing fits in? As you start asking questions like that, I think all of us will probably start to feel this kind of thread maybe running through some of these things. So here's my goal this morning. My goal is not to try to convince us and move us. To be from non-worshippers to worshipers. That's not our value. We don't, we don't have the core value of worship, meaning that we want non-worshippers to become worshipers. The core value of worship for us is that we want to reorient our worship. We want to change the thing that we value most in life. You see, because the gospel has come down to us, because Jesus has saved us, We believe that our first response then is to have God be the ultimate value, treasure, and worth in our life. We believe that's what we were created for and that's what we've been saved for. And I think from Exodus 19, we're going to see God explain this through commanding to have a God-centered worshiping community. A God centered worshiping community. And frankly, as I was looking at this last couple weeks, I would love for that to define our church, right? That if that's our core value, if people would look in on us and they'd say, man, this is a God centered worshiping community. They value God above all else. And as a community, they are running hard after Him. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at this passage and look at just two simple things. Well, what would it mean for us to be worshipers that are God centered? And then what does it look like for us to be worshipers in a community? All right, so we're going to look at what does it mean to be God-centered worshipers? And what does it look like to be a worshiping community? And I think we're going to see that from Exodus 19. So you got your Bible, Exodus 19. Uh, we're going to start actually in verse 4. So the bulk of this is going to come from the last few verses. Um, but before I jump in, let me just set kind of the, the setting for us. So the, the context a little bit into Exodus 19. So maybe you know the story of Exodus, but there was a people uh, called the Israelites and they were enslaved in Egypt. They, they were literal slaves to the people of Egypt, but they cried out to God for deliverance and God came and he said, I'm going to deliver this people into a new land. So God finds a man named Moses, and through uh, his stumbling and a number of wrong turns, he uses Moses, and he actually gets the people out of Egypt. So he breaks down the the army of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He brings them out, and now in Exodus 19, God is going to communicate with them, and he is going to say, um, look, I will be your God, and you can be my people. We can have this relationship but he's going to say, this is the type of people I'm going to need you to be. He's going to command of them some things. And I think what he's, we're going to see is that he's commanding that they be a God-centered worshiping community. So have that in mind as we're looking now into this, that God has just brought the Israelites out and he's about to make this covenant with them. This, he's sealing this relationship with them. So let's jump in. I'm going to read uh, 1 through 4 just so we see it, but then we're going to focus on verse 4. So Exodus 19, starting in verse 1 again. Now on on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So that's everything I just said. They set out from Rephidium and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Okay, so that's the whole setting. That's everything I just said. That's where we're at. Now, it says, The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles, wings and brought you to myself. You know, I think one of the um, misconceptions maybe for us, when we think about our relationship with God or, or us worshiping God, is that basically the Bible just says, hey, worship God just because. Right? Do you ever kind of have that in your mind? Like if somebody were to ask you, hey, why do you, why do you sing praise to God? We not kind of assume something like, well, we just should, right? Like you just do it, right? Because he's God. Or if somebody says, hey, why do you obey what God says over maybe what other deities or other things in life? Why do you follow God? And we just kind of say, well, he's God, right? And we just kind of have these assumptions that, well, I just kind of have to do this. And that's all that God really gives us. In my mind, it, it makes me think about if you ever had your parent, like if you did something, and they said to do something or not to do something, and you asked why, and they would just respond like, well, just do it, right? Like just because I said so, you just have to do it. Okay, now to some extent, that's true. There's an authority thing there, you should just do that. But maybe you're not like me, but if you're like me, there's something that kind of deep down that just is unsatisfying, right? That's not really motivating to then go and do this because I just think, okay, well, I just kind of have to. And I think that we kind of view God calling us to worship him in the same way. He just says, hey, worship me just because I said so. Now if he did that, that would be good and true and we should do that. But here's the thing I love about the Bible. Maybe because I'm fairly skeptical and I'm a question asker, uh, but he doesn't just leave us there. Time and time again in the Bible, when he tells us to do something, he almost always gives us reasons for why we should do that. For instance, in Psalm 95, we get this beautiful call to worship. The psalmist just says, hey, come and worship God. Come and sing praise. Come to him. You know, it never says, come to him and just do it. Like, you just should, right? Psalm 95, if you go read it, it says, hey, come and worship because our God is good. Because he is the king of the earth. Come and worship Because he is more powerful than the mountains, and he knows the depths of the seas. Come and bow down before your maker, because he is a good shepherd, and you are his sheep. Time and time again, the Bible, when it commands you to do something, it almost always says, and this is why we should do this. Now, when we look at Exodus 19, I think the same is true. I'm not going to be up here and just saying, hey, God wants you to worship, so just do it. No, the Bible's going to tell us, hey, why we should do this. Why is it that our worship should be God-centered? Why should he be the main thing in our lives? I think he shows us two things in in this verse. So first, I think our worship should be God-centered because he is more powerful than anything else. Look at the beginning of verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So God's saying that they're going to have to worship him, but he says, do this because you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. God's reminding them of his power in action. When they were slaves in Egypt, he crushed Pharaoh. Now, think about it. Egypt wasn't just some random little people group. This was like the power of the world at this time. So just imagine if somebody were to like come in to the United States of America today and just cripple us. I mean, just without even really trying that hard, just wipe out our military, economically destroy us, just like that. He's saying, That's what I did to Egypt. I just destroyed that, I easily got you out of Egypt. And it wasn't just that he took down their military, which was great. He said, I attacked each of their false gods that they worship. Like, did you know that the ten plagues, if you guys have heard of the ten plagues, um, these weren't just random acts that God was doing. Every one of those plagues, he was attacking a god that Israel was prone to worship in Egypt. So, for instance, the, the sun, they would worship the sun as a god. And so one of the plagues, God came and he blacked out the sun. He's showing, look, I'm more powerful than this, that they worshiped the Nile River because that's how they thrived. That's how their whole land and economy worked was the Nile. And so, what did God do? He made it run with blood, it was destroyed. God was flexing his muscles, showing, Look, I am more powerful than anything else you are prone to value and worship. Nothing in life is more powerful than the hand and the strength of God. So he's saying, "Hey, worship me because I'm simply more powerful than anything else you could love." But the second reason he gives, maybe even better, he says, "It's not just that he's powerful, but it's that he used his power to save and redeem them." Look at the second half of verse 4. He said, "You've seen what I've done to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself." God 's telling him here He not only flexed his muscles against Egypt, but he did that so that they could be with him. I mean how amazing is this? The most powerful being in the universe is coming to this people and saying, "Look, I revealed my power most greatly solely so that you could come and be with me." said so I did this because I saw your oppression." I saw how vulnerable you were. I saw how lowly you were. I saw how hurt you were. I saw how powerless you were. And so I showed my power to be with you. God did not save these people and say, okay, like, run along. Like, you're welcome. Now just go and do whatever. He says, I saved you so that you would be brought to me. I think the reason that our worship should first be God-centered today, because he did the exact same thing for us. You know, you and I have not been slaves in Egypt, most of us have probably not been physical slaves, but in an even greater way, we've been enslaved. We've been enslaved to sin, to death, which manifested, which looked like us being enslaved to substances, us being enslaved to people's approval for validation and self-worth. Us being enslaved to finding security in the right job with the right amount of money. Us enslaved to try and become a better version of ourselves. Us being enslaved to having to wake up each morning and put on this facade and this mask. Each and every one of us are enslaved. Yet the story of Exodus is, a, is simply A shadow. God is showing here in a physical way what he was planning to do in an even greater way. You know, for all of us, God flexed his muscles when he didn't just um, show off to the world by showing himself as king, but the way that he flexed his muscles was he actually came in the form of a man, right? He, He sent his own son, Jesus, to earth, and in this crazy twist, Jesus himself took the cross. You know, when he took the cross, he was taking this enslavement to sin. He became enslaved to sin on the cross so that he could take the consequence of that sin. He died on the cross to take the slavery that you and I are under you yeah, know, what's beautiful is that three days later, when he rose again, God flexes his muscle, shows his power over death, and he didn't just do that to show his power, he did that so that you and I could be brought to himself. I mean, how amazing is it that we have a God who doesn't just want you to know he's powerful, but he uses that power in the most gracious and redeeming way by taking those who are enslaved and bringing them out of slavery. By taking those who are lowly, those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are sinful, and he plucks you out and he brings you to himself. I mean, praise be to God that he redeems those who are enslaved. So friends, if, if you're in the room this morning, you're starting to hear this, and you have never yet trusted in Jesus to free you from your your sins, to, to break the chains of your addictions, to be free and forgiven and to have life, then I would encourage you today, see the Bible say that God has great power and he wants to use it to bring you to himself. That there is no other way out of slavery, there is no other way to be free from your sins except to trust that God flexed his muscles in sending Jesus for you. This is why our worship's God-centered today. This is why more than anything else we value God and what he's done through Jesus. He's the most powerful being in the world and he used that power to take screwed up, sinful, addicted, and broken people like you and me and bring us to himself. Amen? This is what God does and this is why our worship is first God-centered. Now, if that's the reason, if those are the reasons he gives to say, look, this is what I've done for you, then he's going to describe what it looks like to respond as a worshiping community. I think that's what we're going to see in the final two verses here. So look again, Exodus 19. He explained what he did for them, and now he's going to call them into something. Look at verse uh, 5 and 6. He says, "Now, therefore." If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God's calling them to be a God-centered worshiping community because he has saved them. And he says, this is going to look a certain way. There's something that's required of us. Now, I do want us to, to notice, and we have to keep in our mind, the order of how things are happening here. He first reminds them, I've already saved you. right? You were a slave in Egypt and I've already taken you out. I didn't require anything of you other than me just working for you. This is the gospel for us today. This isn't God saying, hey, once you start doing some things, then I will get you out of your slavery. He says, look, I've already acted. I've initiated. I have saved you. But then the proper response from those people is worship. We respond in worship. If you're here this morning and you have this plaguing thought that I have to obey the voice of God if he's going to save me, it'll never work. You're going to keep trying and keep working. You will get burnt out and worn out because you're working for something that God's not requiring of you. He initiates. He moves towards us through Jesus. So we read verse 4, but then we get to this verses 5 and 6. Now, I don't think that this idea of God commanding us to obey him, to, to follow him, to keep his covenant, to, to be with him. I know that sometimes when we read that, we can kind of feel like if God commands anything of us then, then it's, it's just legalistic, right? Like if God saves me, then I shouldn't have to do anything. But I think that's a bit foolish, sorry. if that's how you're kind of thinking. It's just a bit foolish. So think about it this way. Um, any relationship that you have is going to have healthy guardrails to stay faithful and to thrive in that relationship. So I got married to my wife, Bailey, a few years ago. And when we did, we exchanged vows, we entered into this covenant, and then things actually changed about me. Some of the things in my life changed, and some were great. Like Some of the things were like, I no longer lived with 10 dudes in a three-bedroom house. That was a win. Like, that was awesome. I mean, we were committed to paying $15 a month in rent. We did it. But those days were over. I no longer did that anymore. I began to change. I also figured out that, like, stovetop stuffing was not a whole meal, which I didn't know before that. And I, so Bailey, like, introduced new foods besides just a bunch of sodium into my diet. And that was a good thing. I was starting to change. I no longer had to sleep on a 15-year-old futon that basically didn't have a mattress anymore. I got like a real big boy bed. Like it was, it was great. I loved it. Things began to change, and I began to just look and act different. But on an even more serious note, things of how I interacted with people, some of my priorities, some of the things about my lifestyle really did change. Like when we got married after that wedding day, I didn't tell her like, hey, see ya, and go hang out with those 10 guys every single night anymore. Right? My priorities changed. For us to thrive, things had to look a little bit different. I didn't marry her and then the next day begin to start to try to like woo and date other women. Right? That's just one word. It doesn't make any sense because within our marriage for it to thrive, there has to be faithfulness. There has to be commitment. We get this, right? There's just this sense of every good relationship to thrive has some sort of guardrails. It has some sort of obligations for us to help it move forward. And I think what God is saying here is that if you enter into a relationship with him through faith in Jesus, that's going to change some things about you. There's going to be some things in your life that begin to look different. And you're going to start to act and prioritize different things than you used to. We now live primarily in obedience to what God says. Right, if he has saved us and he's redeemed us and we were powerless without him, he now says, hey, the first thing I need you to do is I need you to obey my voice. I need you to follow me. When I say something, I need you to do this. And it's not because he wants to crush us and make us submit. It's because he wants to help the relationship thrive. He wants to help us get out of bad habits, out of sin, and walk with him. It's not legalistic for me to be faithful to my wife. It's helping the relationship thrive. So too, it's not legalistic for you to do things for God and to change the way you live. It's helping your relationship with God thrive. So for us to be God-centered worshipers, our lives now begin to need to line up with what he says. Now, I do want to get... Uh, fairly practical, and I'm going to do this more towards the end, about individually what that looks like, like what this might look like for you and I to start hearing God's Word and obeying. Uh, but before we do, I want, to, I want to stay kind of zoomed out, and I want to just see what does it look like for a, a whole church to do this? Not just individually, but as a community of people, what does it look like, and what's the purpose of us worshiping together as a family, as of people. And I love that Exodus 19, in verse uh, 5 and 6, he gives us two kind of images to think of, two illustrations of what a worshiping community looks like. And so I want to I see those images, and then we'll go down and say, okay, what does it look like individually for all of us to start doing this? So, so first one, in verse 5, look with me. He says that if we obey and worship him, he calls us his treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So the reality is, um, God owns everything. Right? If he created all things, he owns all things. And he says, look, all the peoples are mine. Every people group you see, everything around the world is mine. But among all the different peoples, he said, the people that worship me, the people that are saved by me, they're going to be my treasured possession." Among everybody else, among all the other earth, you guys will be my treasured possession. It's gonna be the thing that he values and he shows off more than anything. Think about that idea of a treasured possession like, um, uh, picture back to, um, or maybe you're in high school now, but picture your, your high school. Right? And if you go into the high school, most schools, I'm assuming, um, have some sort of like trophy case. All right, does your school have this? Uh, in Norfolk we did. So we had this trophy case and what they did was they they kind of posted of all the people that went to the school and all the years that we were there they posted kind of the people that that they valued the most, but that they did stuff, right? So they put pictures of like state championship sports teams or, or people that went on to do like amazing things. They would put their names in their, their pictures. They would put trophies there. I remember there was a, a board at one point in our like weight room and it was all the people that went on to play uh, either college sports or professional sports. What the high school was doing is they're kind of showing off to everybody. Of everybody we have... We want to put forth these people, these accomplishments, these things, and what that does is it begins to help you think that the school is kind of awesome, right? Like you don't put out your state championship teams for everyone to think like, oh, they only have four. No, you put them out to say, hey, we we've won some things, we've done some things. It helps people, and when you see that, you kind of think, oh, that's pretty. That's pretty cool, right? These these trophies are uh, trying to help show people how good the school really is. Well, so too, God is saying, look, of all the peoples, the people that worship me, you're kind of in my trophy case. I'm going to show you off to the entire world where everyone is going to begin to look into the the people of God, those people who are following God, and they're going to say, man, the God they're following must be pretty awesome. Like, they're giving up everything for this God. There there must be something there. They're living so differently than everybody else. There's got to be something there. It's this simple idea that when we live as God tells us to live as a people, the outside world should take notice. Now, I think the the maybe convicting question for us is, um, is that us as a church? You know, if the world peers in to how we operate as a church, are people saying, man, God is he must be really good. Or do they look at us and kind of say, he must be kind of boring. He must not be that valuable because they live just like I live. Are we living in a way that's so worshipful to God that people look in and they've got to notice that there must be something about this God because it reorients everything they do. That's the first imagery he gives us. Secondly, he moves on and he says, a God-centered worshiping community says it's to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that might sound a little bit funny to us because we don't really have priests. So uh, Jared and I, we are not priests because a priest uh, is, a, is a middleman. It's a mediator between God and people. And so in the Old Testament, they would have these priests because people were sinful and they could not get to God. And so there were these priests that were called to be like God. They were called to be holy. They were called to be righteous. And they acted as kind of a middleman. They kind of helped the people interact with God and they helped God speak to his people. Now, today we don't have that because we have one mediator. We have one high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the access to the Father. Jared and I are not. It is only through Jesus that you are saved and that you get to the Father. And yet, somehow, even in the New Testament, the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests. Not one individual priest in the church, but the church is a kingdom of priests. Somehow, we are supposed to be holy. We're to be like God, and we are supposed to function as kind of a middleman. Between God and the people of the world, the church is supposed to be this middleman. Again, think about it maybe this way. Um, A a few years ago now, I had a friend who uh, was playing football in the NFL, and he was in New York, and I went out to this game. He invited me out, and I got to watch the game. And afterwards, uh, he invited me to go down into kind of where like the locker room area and stuff is. Now, that was a place... I had no business being, I was about, uh, I was just different than some of the big people that were down there, okay? So I didn't belong down there, but he invited me down there, and basically as long as I kind of stuck by his side, I got to meet people, I got to see things that I really had no business meeting or seeing, because in that moment he was kind of acting as my middleman, right? He was ushering me into places and to see people that I really shouldn't have been seeing or in myself would never have been able to go there. Well, that's what God is saying, hey, that's what I want you, my people, a worshiping community to be like. I want you to help bring people to me. I want to use you to help show people the ways of God. The reason that we should follow God, one of them, is because the more we look like God, the more we show the world what God is like. We're to be his treasured possession and we are supposed to be the middlemen that are ushering people in towards God. These are the illustrations, the images that he gives. Now I'm not going to spend any more time on that because next week we're going to look at the value of a community and what, how that actually flushes out. So I want to end simply by, by this. I, I just want to ask, what would it look like for us individually then? If that's what we're supposed to be at a, at a corporate level, as, as all of us, what does it look like for you and I as individuals to begin worshiping, to begin hearing the words of God and as he says in verse 4, 5, 2, obey Him. I think it's two really quick, practical things. Uh, the first one, if you come here on a Sunday morning, and we're here, you know that what I'm doing right now is I'm not communicating to you some grand thoughts that I have. I'm not up here trying to charm you and, and get you to believe that I'm winsome. My whole goal is simply to communicate what God says to His people. And, you know, my goal every Sunday is to communicate what God says and to force each and every one of us to make a decision. You can either hear God's word and say, I am going to follow that, or you can hear God's word and you can say, no, I'm not going to follow that. That's, what, that's the decision that we have. As we preach about what Jesus has done and how we should respond, every week you have a decision to make. Am I going to live that way or am I not? So here's what I want to challenge this. What if every Sunday, as we hear God's word and we think through what that means for us, what if we were a group of individuals that every week we said, I am choosing to follow that. Even if it's scary, even if it's hard, even if it's a cost, I'm going to say yes. What if we did the unthinkable and we didn't forget what we just talked about like when we got to our car, like, I know that ha- that happens to me, too. Like, we literally will hear this. We'll think, oh, that's awesome. We get to our car, we go to lunch, and it's gone. What if we were people that we said, this week, I am going to live this out? Secondly, the second other thing that we can do to start this um, is as individuals throughout your week, what if in the morning you were to maybe read your Bible or, or specifically just pray, and what if every morning you woke up and you just prayed, God, will you show me one thing to do today? Just one thing, right? We're not gonna, I mean, maybe it's gonna be something massive, but maybe it's something really small and you just ask God, hey, would you show me one thing that I should do today? And if that sounds weird or like you don't know how to hear God's voice, I I would encourage you, if you start doing that every morning, you just think, God, would you show me one thing and you try to actually listen, you're gonna notice that I think God's speaking to us a lot more than we think. You're going to get little kind of urgings. You're going to get these prompts of like, man, maybe I should do this. And maybe it's something massive, like conquering the whole world for Jesus. And that would be awesome if that's what God calls you to. But maybe it's just, hey, tonight I just I need to do the dishes for my spouse. You know, today I'm, I have a long day at work, but I just know when I get home I need to spend at least 10 minutes with my kids. Maybe it's i got a neighbor who I've just always thought about praying for, inviting, or talking to. And maybe today I just... Go and initiate a conversation. Maybe it's just God saying, hey, just spend 30 minutes with me tonight in my word." I mean, it could be anything. But what if we were people that every day we were just asking God, show me one thing. Just one thing you want me to do. And I think as we do these things, we'll start to get better at hearing what God says and living this out. And as we do that as a people, as we begin to follow him, Not only will we begin to be more in union with God, but I think we're going to be a better evangelistic community. And people are going to look in and see something different. As we bring people to God, they're going to see something different in our church. So let us be a people that respond to the gospel with this. That if Jesus has saved us, don't fall back into your old habits. If God's redeemed you from your sins, don't go and serve them anymore. Let's be a people that say, man, Jesus has saved me, and I'm his, and I'm following him. Amen? All right, let me pray. God, man, we thank you that you have saved us. You've redeemed us. God, you have not left us in our sin. You have not left us in our addictions. You have not left us there. But you have come down, and you have not made yourself less holy. But you are now pulling us up, and you're making us more holy. You're giving us life and joy, God, would your spirit press this into each and every one of us today? Even today, as we hear your word, would we respond by saying, yes, I am going to start just listening for the voice of God and just trying to respond. Even if I bumble my way through it for a few weeks, God, I'm just going to try to listen and obey. God, would we be a people that would be a God-centered worshiping community? That we would love you and follow you because of what you have done for us, God, we thank you that you have loved us, that you've saved us, and that you are changing us. Would you give us the strength to follow you? I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.